Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. It was a fun topic that we did. I didn't think there would be as intense a backlash as there was, but the LA Times came out with their official fast food French fry power rankings. We spoke to Lucas Kwan Peterson. He's the food columnist there at the LA Times about the methodology the intense backlash he got for his rankings and why he positioned the burger favorite in and out dead last when it comes to French fries. And we started off talking to Lucas with all the hate that he got from his article. A lot of anger, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of anger. I started doing these rankings initially because I thought, Oh, if we can sort of rank sports teams, why can't we do it with food? And the result is like equally the same. If you tell someone who's a diehard Patriots fan, like, I hate the Patriots, you know what kind of a reaction you're going to get. Oh, yeah. They're going to get. So likewise, people, especially people who love In-N-Out in California, when I said that I didn't particularly care for In-N-Out fries, the reaction was not happy, to say the least. Right. Tell us a little bit about how you went through this. You went around and ate all of these fries. Tell us the parameters that you used with it. Yeah, I went around. I got about 19 or 20 places. I split it over a few days because I think if I had to go to all of them at once, I would probably kill myself with fat and sodium. Um, <laughs> so I split it out. I tried to map places around Los Angeles. So it was sort of a reasonable driving schedule. But as it is, I had to do a ton of driving around because some of the locations of like the Steak and Shake or like a Sonic, they're not a ton of them right. in Los Angeles. So I had to I had to drive pretty far out. But basically, I just plotted it out. I went, I ate the fries, I took photos, I took notes, and then I uh, just decided how I like them. And you judged them on two metrics, which was taste and texture, uh, which includes fry shape and mouthfeel. Texture is important in a fry. You can have, a, some people like a nice crunchy fry. Some people like a crunchy fry mixed with the occasional soft fry. Yeah. Some people like a waffle fry. You know, it's, it, it's really all depends on the individual. Let's get to the rankings now. Number 19, bottom of the list. In and out. Tell us why. People were not happy, and, and <laughs> but I, I stand by my decision that In and Out fries are some of the worst fries on the face of the planet. <laughs> they are just not cooked thoroughly. They're frequently not salted properly. They're just kind of mealy. You know, I like a nice, fluffy interior, crispy exterior that you get from a double fry, you know, proper way to cook a fry. And they don't do that in and out I respect the fact that they're fresh, but there is little more than that that I can respect. Yeah. And that's always been one of the biggest mysteries to me is that they are fresh. You see them in the back cutting the potatoes in that little machine that they have. And they do routinely come out subpar. Uh, they're not my favorite fries. I love the burgers. Uh, you know, it's uniquely California. And you want a good fry to be a companion to that great burger and it's just not always there so i agree with you there i don't know if it's at the bottom of the list for me but i agree with you that the fries could be better all right let's jump ahead we'll get into the top five right here arby's comes in at number five 
and you say, blessed be the curly fries. I think that may be more nostalgia than anything else. And I think nostalgia actually plays a, a large part of why people like In-N-Out. But I have memories of eating uh, curly fries in my high school cafeteria and sitting alone and wishing I had more friends. But, but the <laughs> curly fries were great. Yeah. Yeah, I love a good curly fry. Steak and Shake comes in at number four. I think this is the only fry on this entire list that I have not had. They've got really skinny fries. And I like a skinny fry because you get more of that exterior on a, on a skinny fry. So I really like the shape and the, and the texture and, and they were pretty good. Number three is Del Taco. I've always loved Del Taco fries and always fought for them to get more notoriety. They're also crinkle cut fries. Yeah, people were excited. I didn't even know Del Taco had fries and I was extremely happy that they were good and yeah. that they came with like good hot sauce and they were hot and they were fresh and they were crispy on the outside, nice and fluffy on the inside. They were, they were really good. Number two, this is one of my all-time favorites, and I think uh, you nailed it perfectly. That nostalgia factor really hits it there is McDonald's fries. Yeah, I, and, and when McDonald's fries are on, you know, there's no better fry. But again, you just never know. Maybe the ones that you have you know, the ones that you get are, have been sitting out for a little while and they're not just like hot and fresh out the fryer. So, but when they're good, they're the best and they're just like salty and you get a really nice mixture of texture, crispy and a little soggy ones. Yeah. And then it's just nice and beefy and you can sort of grab a bunch at once. And it, it's, it's really just a, a great fry. I've been known to go to McDonald's and just get an order of fries and that's my snack and that's all I need. Top one, number one is five guys fries and they fry these in peanut oil they give you a ton even the small little cup that you order is like a large size fries somewhere else and i do love these fries they're very good five guys i was surprised but again it's like these fries are twice as much cost twice as much as like an order of McDonald's fries, but they were so head and shoulders above every other fry in my estimation. They were just well-cooked peanut oil, really clean flavor. It didn't mask the potato flavor, very potatoey, well-salted, great texture. I was just very impressed by the fries and they were just not even approached by any other one. Thank you for doing all the legwork. Uh, I'm sure you'll still get a bunch of feedback and a lot of hate mail uh, to, in regards to this, but you know, keep doing yeah, them. The, and ma the mayor is not very happy with me. Oh, I'm telling you, everybody loves that in and out. So you can't get away from it. Lucas Kwan Peterson, food columnist at the LA Times with the French fry power rankings. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. For a little more on this French fry power ranking, I wanted to bring in Miranda. Hey. Uh, Miranda, what do you think about this uh, In-N-Out being dead last? I don't think it's fair. I agree with his assessment about In-N-Out because their fries always leave me wanting something, but he didn't consider the variables. I don't go to In-N-Out for the plain fries. I go to In-N-Out for the animal fries. That's a very good point. Yeah. Or the burger. I mean, I just go, sometimes I'll go and just get burgers. Exactly. Uh, what is your favorite fast food French fry? I mean, I think it's safe to say everyone's favorite fast food French fry is McDonald's. Yeah. I don't, th I always order them well done. I don't think that Del Taco's fries deserve to be as high on the list as uh -huh. they were, but those are good fries also. And did you try the number one on this list, Five Guys fries? So I like Five Guys fries, but I'll tell you why. And it's because they remind me of Wingstop fries. I don't Ooh. know if that's a national chain or not, but Wingstop has hands down the best French fries in the entire world. I will agree with you that Wingstop has excellent fries. They're they are kind of crispy. They're not too crispy. Mm -hmm. They're potatoey on the inside. They have great dipping sauces like yeah. the honey mustard. 
I that's me right there. They season Wing them, fi- fries and honey mustard. They season them with like a brown sugar because they're like salty, but they're also kind of yeah, sweet. Yeah. And I don't know what it is, but if I could get those French fries every single day, I'd probably be like 700 pounds. <laughs> yeah, there are a few things at play with those Wingstop fries. So I, that didn't even make it on the list at all. But that, that's a shame. That could have been a, a good addition there. Thanks, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. After last week's shooting in Aurora, Illinois, one of the top questions everybody always asks is, did the suspect own the gun legally? In that case, he passed a background check and he got his gun, but he never should have actually passed that background check. He had a prior felony conviction in another state that just didn't show up. And this is a problem that arises in cases all across the country, people getting guns when they shouldn't be getting them. There's actually even a law on the books that says a gun sale can proceed after three days even if the background check isn't completed. We spoke to Zusha Ellenson. He's a reporter at the Wall Street Journal to talk about how many buyers get guns and what the ATF has to do to get them back. After every one of these mass shootings, right, the first thing people want to know is, should this guy have been able to own a gun? As everyone knows, there's laws about who can own a gun in this country. If you have a past felony, if you've been committed to, say, a mental asylum, if you've had other legal troubles, you're not allowed to own a gun. And it turns out this guy, Gary Martin, who shot up his former workplace outside of uh, Chicago there, he had a past felony, a conviction for felony assault back in 95, which should have prohibited him from him from ever buying a gun. But somehow he slipped through the state background check system there in Illinois and was able to purchase a gun. Now, Illinois is one of 13 states that does their own background checks. The rest of the country mainly relies on the FBI. So the state does their own background checks. They did an initial check on him that missed his old felony. He gets his little firearms card. He buys the gun. They later find out he has this old felony. By then it's too late. They ask him to turn it in. He doesn't turn it in and they don't go to seize it. So he keeps the same Smith & Wesson handgun that he uses in the horrific attack of last week just because the background check system didn't catch him in Illinois. And in this case, I mean, he could have had potentially have had this gun forever. He got the gun already. The thing that really triggered it was that he wanted to get a concealed carry permit and he wanted to expedite that process. So he submitted his fingerprints. And then once they ran those fingerprints, then it came up that he had this thing in Mississippi. And in that case, talk about people who should not own a gun. He hit his girlfriend with an aluminum baseball bat. He stabbed her repeatedly with a butcher knife. And just because he didn't submit fingerprints the first time around, he was able to get that gun. They send him a letter. Excuse me, sir, please, you shouldn't have this gun. Can you return it? I mean, that's something that goes into the trash instantly. Absolutely. And what authorities there, they're looking into all this right now. They're trying to figure out why the first background check didn't catch that old felony. It seems like it should have. And then they're also investigating why no one did anything when he didn't turn in the gun. Now, under Illinois law, local cops don't have to go get the gun from the guy, but they can. And they didn't in this case, obviously. So that's the case in Illinois. They do their own background checks. And as you said, the majority of the country relies on the FBI. And then the FBI relies on the ATF to go and get these guns back a lot of times. So let's talk about this other part of the story, banned buyers and just the rules with buying guns. A Mm -hmm. lot of times in minutes, you can get past your background check if you have nothing wrong with you. But sometimes things take a little longer. But because of the federal law, a sale can proceed after three business days. So let's say something is weird in somebody's background check and they have to go back and and figure out what's wrong. And this could take a week, 
maybe a month. Mm -hmm. Who knows how long it could take. But legally, the sale can proceed after three days. That just sounds crazy to me. Back in 93, they passed the Brady Bill, which was a big gun control bill named after um, Ronald Reagan staffer, Mr. Brady, who was shot during the assassination attempt. Part of it was instituting this background check system that we now have. And in that bill, it said that if the background checks are not finished within three days, the sale can proceed. So that means like, say I go into a gun store, I want to buy myself a gun and they see something in my background that they need to look into further. So they say, put a, put a hold on it for three days. But then say the FBI employee who's looking into my background, say they can't find the record. There's a lot of records that aren't entered into the system like they should be. Or say they're busy with other cases and they don't get to it. If three days passes, I can go back to that gun store and say, hey, the three days passes, can you sell me that gun? And the gun store can sell me the gun, even if my background check is not completed. And the number of these cases where people are getting guns without a completed background check has been going up in recent years. In 2017, 310,000 sales were allowed to proceed before the background check was completed. And we've seen it going up as background checks have gone up in general and also as FBI employees have been overwhelmed trying to do more work and trying to prevent the next mass shooting. Then what happens, so the, the FBI employees, they have a lot more scrutiny on them these days because of mass shootings in the past where mass shooters have gotten guns where they shouldn't have gotten guns. And so they're working a little harder now. And what's that? part of the reason that we're seeing more of these referrals to the ATF. So the FBI employee keeps working on the background check and then they finally find something. They're like, oh man, we shouldn't have let that guy get that gun. He has this criminal record from a long time ago. And so they send the ATF agents out to seize the gun. And that's what our story was about. They're going out thousands of times a year to take back guns that should have never been sold in the first place. And the number is going up and up. In 2017, the latest year where we have numbers, there are about 6,000 times the ATF agents were sent out to take back guns from people who should have never been allowed to have them. This is a top priority for ATF agents when it's time to go do this. And from the report, if they're working on a drug seizures or something that's happening at the border or whatnot, and one of these things come to their attention, it's like, drop everything now and go get this gun back because nobody wants to sit on uh, the next mass shooter. I mean, this happened with Dylan Roof, who uh, shot up the uh, church in, in Charlton, South Carolina. He should not have had the gun. You're so right, Oscar. The Dylan Roof case haunts everyone because what happened with Roof, if you'll remember, he's a white supremacist who in 2015, he goes to buy himself a Glock and then he shoots up this church. It's a terrible, tragic, horrific shooting. And he shouldn't have been able to buy the gun, the FBI admitted afterward. What happened, he had a past drug arrest. When he went to buy the gun, his name, there was a little uh, entry there in the database and the FBI employee said, oh, I should look into that. It looks like he was arrested for drugs and drug users aren't allowed to own guns. So I need to get the report from the arrest so I can make a determination. So this examiner, she um, contacted the local police, but ended up contacting the wrong local police department. Anyway, the three days passed and she had never, she didn't get the record and he got the gun and they stopped looking into it. And then he carried out this horrific attack two months later. So a judge looked at this case. He blasted the federal, federal government, number one, because this report about Roof was actually in a database that other law enforcement officers can easily access, but the FBI employees who do the background checks weren't allowed to access it at the time. So that has now been changed. Now the FBI employees would have been able to find the record that would prohibit a roof from getting the gun, but at the time they did not have access to that database. And it's a small change, but a pretty significant change. So they use the National Instant Criminal Background Check System. It's known as NICS 
to weed out the people who pose a public risk and shouldn't be having these guns. Talk to us about the process of getting the guns back. It all starts with a letter from the ATF. We'll take you through one of the cases we uh, talked about in our story. I don't know how old your listeners are, but there used to be a famous pro wrestler named Terry Funk. And I think his catchphrase was something like suck eggs or something like that. Anyhow, he lives near Amarillo, Texas. He has a ranch there. And about a decade ago, a guy named Michael Allen Chance Green, who was a cowboy working on a ranch nearby, became obsessed with Terry Funk. And he would deliver him these really bizarre handwritten letters in his mailbox. And uh, Funk told us that he came onto his property uninvited. So eventually they charged this green guy with um, stalking. And he goes into the court system and, well, the judge in the case decides that actually Green is mentally ill. And so he declares him mentally incompetent and sends him to a state mental hospital. Come 10 years later, 2016, Green goes into a Texas gun shop and buys himself a rifle. And because of the three-day limit on the background checks, it sort of slips past the three-day limit. He gets his gun. But then the FBI realizes, oh, this guy was declared mentally incompetent. He's not allowed to own a gun. So they send the ATF out to go collect his gun. And what do they find in his house? They find that gun and two other revolvers, as well as a bunch of certified mail receipts where he had sent a bunch of letters to various politicians. They, you know, the feds are insinuating that he may have been a danger. His lawyer, Green's lawyer, say he is not a danger. He, you know, he just has some mental troubles and he sees the world differently, not a danger. In any event, they seize his guns and now he's in a prison medical facility getting medicated with antipsychotic drugs. But that's an example of the type of case where they have accidentally let this guy get a gun and now they have to go seize it from him. There's been lawsuits related to some of this stuff. Going back to Dylan Roof, families of the people killed by him tried to sue the government for failing to stop him from buying a gun. The U.S. has immunity in such in, in claims like this, so that case was denied. But even some of the uh, people in the FBI say, you know, that the background check system is disturbingly superficial, and uh, the single most influential factor that could be changed without affecting the whole process could be don't have a three-day limit or wait until the background check is complete. There's been laws introduced to that effect, but. Those things have uh, never really made it anywhere close to passing. Right. So we talked to Stephen Morris, who used to run the background check system at the FBI. He's recently retired. And he thought, how do we get ourselves out of this problem? He thinks it's by extending that three days, as you say. There are some states like California that allow more time for background checks. There's other states that do that, too. And he thinks if you could extend it out to five or ten days, you wouldn't have these so-called delayed denials where people are getting the guns that shouldn't get them. On the other hand, and we do have to... We, we should, you know, make it clear that's that's his view and right. some some other former government officials' views. If you talk to the NRA, they say, well, why should gun owners suffer because the government is bad at doing their background checks? You know, we, you know, if you want to fix the problem, make the background check system work better. Get all the records in there. Hire more FBI examiners and so forth. Don't take it out on gun owners. They're worried that people are going to be arbitrarily denied, you know, their right to have a gun if the government's, you know, waiting months and months to approve a background check. Yeah. And there could be a little bit of truth to that. You know, it was we said in 2017, there was 8.6 million gun transactions that were processed by the FBI. That is an extremely large amount of gun processing right there. So it is tough to keep up. And, and those workers are overworked and overburdened on this. Thank you very much. You guys at the Wall, uh, Wall Street Journal made an excellent video summing this whole thing up. I suggest everybody go and check that out. Zusha Ellenson, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Oscar. I really appreciate it. 
Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.